Hello, I'm Stephanie Lewell. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time, Confessions of a Diamond Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addict to being underwater. During the surface time today, I caught up with Gary Stokes in Discovery Bay of Hong Kong. He is a veteran crew member of Sea Shepherd until they left Asia. He then founded Oceans Asia to continue with the same intelligence-based conservation work in the region. He and his team have been investigating and exposing the bad guys who have been committing wildlife crimes and seeing justice done. This is Discovery Bay, where I live in Hong Kong. This is my restaurant. I have a restaurant far on the beach. Thanks for joining me. Okay. I've got this question for you. Um, yep. Fire away. Where was your last memorable dive? I had a really unique dive halfway between Timor Leste and Australia in the middle of the ocean. That was a pretty unique one. Didn't really see too much, but it was right in the middle of the ocean, halfway between the two when I was with Sea Shepherd and I was doing a campaign in Timor Leste where we had caught a load of shark fin boats on the way back to Australia. We stopped the ship in the middle of nowhere and jumped overboard and went for a dive like you do when you're 400 miles from anywhere. So that was memorable. We didn't actually see that much, but yeah, that was memorable. Not my most photographic dive. Let's put it like that. Have you done any in Hong Kong? Oh, we've been diving in Hong Kong. One of the things that I do here with Oceans Asia is we do a lot of ghost nets clearance. We've been pretty much diving and pulling up ghost nets. Again, not the most photographic, but very meaningful. And we were going out every second weekend and pulling up one to two tons of ghost nets out the water. These are abandoned fishing gear. So yeah, we still get diving in. You can't not dive, otherwise you get dry behind the gills and these. You mentioned about ghost nets. I used to live in Hong Kong and I've definitely dived there. So I have seen a lot of ghost nets. I'm always curious as to why they were there in the first place, how they ended up being there and what are the damages. And obviously when I were out underwater in Hong Kong, it was mostly for trainings. Every time I came back, I always felt that I really got to find out how to go about taking this off this seabed. It's a common thing underwater. Yes. Yeah. Sadly all too common and it's not just here it's all around the world in pretty much most of the coastal sort of communities you'll find ghost nets how they get there that's another thing most of the ghost nets we're pulling up gill nets which are like monofilament nets called gill nets because they catch the fish by the gills and, and they just stay there they're very cheap so that makes them almost throw away discardable they snag on rocks and get torn and ripped up very easily so because of that a lot of the fishermen here, they'll use them for a couple of weeks. And after that, they've got so many holes in. It's just not worth repairing them. They just throw them overboard. Where we're located, obviously near the Pearl River Delta, there's a big fishing community nearby called Chung Chow. And we used to get fishermen coming from the mainland and buy all the old nets and then take them back to the mainland and repair them. But then the cost of gill nets came down so much, they stopped coming. So now the fishermen don't really know what to do with them. So they just dump them overboard and then they'll drift in and wrap around rocks and sit there 
for potentially a couple of hundred years because they are made of plastic and it doesn't degrade. The problem with that is obviously then they are designed to kill wildlife and they continue killing indiscriminately. And obviously those catches never go to market. So the ridiculous thing of it all is fishermen who rely on what they like to call resource. So I don't call it resource, I call it wildlife or an ecosystem. They're actually dumping things in there that will reduce their own resource. It just doesn't make much sense, really. You'd think they'd be protecting it so they could get the biggest amount of fish out of it. But, yeah, we're pulling up nets and they're full of fish, crabs, everything else. Obviously, you do the regular cleanup. How does that work? So what we do here is I try to make it a fun event, a family event, and we'll rent a junk, which is just like a large pleasure boat. We'll go out and we'll go along the coastline and I use the time to educate kids on board about the local habitat and what we're likely to see around and everything. And then we'll put like the families now on the beach and they'll go around the rocks and things and just the ones that are already on the rocks. So the one thing that I do urge everybody is the concern of coast nets they are very dangerous underwater especially for untrained divers or novice divers open water divers especially in hong kong where we have poor visibility it's very easy to get caught in these nets and that can prove very dangerous if you can't notify your buddy and you get stuck in these nets it could be fatal so i'm very cautious when we do anything with nets with scuba i normally only take four of us we'll go down together and they're normally rescue diver or, or above people i know i've dived with i know they're competent underwater and we have a plan we'll go down we'll recce the nets first we'll work out what's down there what type of nets because they're not all gill nets sometimes we get these snake nets which is like a box it's almost like an accordion sort of thing like a lobster pot sort of thing that sort of mentality and these are 30 foot long segments but they tie them together so they can go up to a couple of kilometers so we'll get to the bottom we'll find the net and then we'll find the end and then we'll clip a lift boy on the end and just put a little bit of air in and then go along and bunch it up and sometimes we we'll use zip cables or string and just bundle it so it ends up like a long sausage and along the way we'll be putting lift bags and just put a little bit of air in and then it just comes up a bit and then when you get to the end then you can mm -hmm. fire that one right up and then the people on the boat will then go along and get that end and start pulling it into the boat and obviously keeping divers away when it is actually mid-water because if it does decide to come back down it could obviously again entrap divers we take our time we plan it out and try to mitigate all the risks we can and then when we get it inboard on the boat we drag it into the beach and the kids and the families will come out and help drag it up the beach where we pile it all up above the high tide bar the government actually here are very good i take a photo and a geo position tag and I tell them where it is they come and pick it up and dispose of it yeah that's the regular ghost net trip you're a diving instructor right yeah i taught for many years in hong kong and I still think it's one of the best places to learn to dive because you're concentrating on your depth, your time, your plan. You're not like when I've taught people in the Philippines or Thailand, they're looking at all the beautiful fish and the beautiful corals and everything else. And they're not really paying attention on the dive skills. Whereas here, the divers I've trained here have turned into better divers because the first 10, 15 dives, they're just doing it routinely and it comes automatic. So when they go off to say Philippines or Seychelles or wherever, it's just automatic. They're just diving and air of 
their space and time. Oh yeah, in Hong Kong, your buoyancy has to be good because there are lots of sea urchins. Sea urchins, yes. Without writing up Hong Kong, we've actually got more species of coral than the Philippines and the Caribbean put together. We've got so much wildlife underwater here. It's just the trouble is in the summer months, when you get the algae blooms, the visibility just goes completely down to zero sometimes. If you go in the winter and you're not afraid of being a little bit cold, 13, 14 degrees water, you can dive down at uh, Hoi Wan. You dive on some of the wrecks they've put down there and you can see the entire fishing vessel below you from one end to the other. So I've had yeah. visibility of 20 meters in Hong Kong in the winter and I've taken photos. I did an exhibition before and I posed this sort of question to people. I had seven pictures from Hong Kong, seven pictures from Philippines, and I had them all. And I gave people these little strips with seven little luminous dots and said, mm -hmm. put them on the ones that are from Hong Kong. And they couldn't. And that straight away was the whole point of it was the fact that if you have to question which is Philippines, which is Hong Kong, then we've obviously got something here that's worth protecting. At the end, I put frames over the ones that were from Hong Kong and people were really surprised. There's actually a lot of life here. Yeah, they are. I have dived in Hong Kong for over 10 years. Like you say, in the summer month, the water visibility is just a shy of miso soup great. And that's great for trainings. You mentioned about your old shop, Sea Shepherd. I really have to ask you a question about Sea Shepherd. Let me just set the background because Sea Shepherd along with Greenpeace are probably two of the oldest green warrior activists. Like they've definitely been around before I was born and growing up regularly see them in the broadcast news about whatever crazy controversial acts that they've taken to make a point across. And I think as a result of those, it's been perceived and branded as green radicals and aggressive activists and very much on the left wing. Now we take a step back. This ship has been around for over 40 years now, right? Yeah, 1977. So. Yeah, just 45 years. My gosh, 45 years still going. Yep. So it's an indication that this is an organization that's been organized, operated, managed by a group of super intelligent people knowing what they're doing. You're not exactly the teenager being, being rebellious, having the rant about something you're displeased about. You actually have thought through the actions before you took them. You've been obviously with them for some time. So where are we at now with She the Shepherd, especially comparing to the time when you first started with them? Yeah, I was up until two years ago, I was the global director for Asia. In the 10 years I was with Sea Shepherd, it evolved so much. As you say, yeah, you use the word radical. We used to refrain from using the word radical ourselves, but obviously that was the perception in the media. And when I joined, we used what we called aggressive nonviolence. So you can be aggressive, but as long as you're not hurting anybody. When I joined, our ships were black. We flew the Jolly Roger. We had a history of direct action where we don't go and hold up banners. We go and direct and intervene to stop the process of whatever we're up against. So whether that was whaling in Antarctica or the shark binning in the Galapagos, the same thing. It was more about direct action. And yeah, when we were seen as radical, eco-terrorists was the word we got called quite a lot. I actually like to call 
eco-terrorist in my terms would be BP and Shell and people who are actually destroying the environment. I wouldn't really say people trying to save the environment were eco-terrorists. And well, we had collisions with fishing vessels, unintentional, but these things happen when you're in close quarters with ships and that was deemed as radical. And, and nowadays the governments are finally waking up to what Captain Paul Watson has been saying now for 45 years, if the oceans die, we die. It's becoming uh, on every government's agenda, the threat of illegal fishing, overfishing, marine debris and plastic pollution. And they're starting to wake up now and see and take action. I did quite a bit of work with Minister Susi from Indonesia, who was the fisheries minister for Indonesia for about four years, I believe. And she took a really hard line stance where she said to any illegal fishing vessel, if I catch you, I will sink your ship. And she did. She would catch them. They didn't believe her at first. She caught them. I think she caught six the first time and she took the crew off, took the fuel off and she blew them up and she videoed it, oh my it God. On, and she put it on YouTube and everybody thought, oh my God, she's actually serious. And then she blew up another 41, I believe it was all on the same day at 10 o'clock in every single port along Indonesia. She was serious about confronting illegal fishing and illegal fishing stopped in Indonesia. It was incredible. The power that she had, the local fishing communities, the artisanal fishermen, they saw her as like a God because basically mm -hmm. she kicked out all these illegal boats that were coming in and stealing all their fish. Fish populations exploded. Local fishermen suddenly started filling their nets and filling their boats. They were happy. They could actually make a living out of it again. Um, and it was great. So when people say we're radical, I even said to Paul Watson one time, I think we've got to become more radical because at the moment governments are now blowing up ships. We've never done that before. I'm not saying we, we should, but the way that Sea Shepherd has evolved as well, we were always seen as the outsiders that nobody wanted, almost like the ladies of the night of the conservation movement. Everybody wanted them, but nobody wanted to be seen with. And that is the biggest evolution that I saw in my time with Sea Shepherd was the fact that we started working with governments, started working with law enforcement. It's refreshing to see governments actually coming out and actually wanting to embrace sea rider agreements that they were doing in Africa, where we'll provide the ship and the crew, for example. They put their Marines on or their Coast Guards. Sea Shepherd could always find the bad guys. The trouble is we didn't have any legal authority to do anything about it. Whereas when you're in a country's economic zone, by having these Coast Guard officials or Marines on board, you could literally take them and board them and arrest them. And that has been a resounding success in Africa. And I ran a campaign in East Timor where we went to Timor on a reconnaissance mission. I took the ocean warrior from Perth and went to go and hunt down these 15 large Chinese shark boats. And we found them and documented their activities. They were already told not to fish for sharks. They were only targeting sharks. And I had a friend in the Australian federal police who was working in Timor last day. And I sent the footage to him. He shared it with the Timorese police. And they said, we would love to be able to arrest these guys, but we don't have a boat. So I said, we have a ship. We can take you on board and we can deliver you and your men. And we did a sting operation at six in the morning and delivered a load of armed Timor-Leste police onto these fishing boats and they arrested all 15. Now these boats, we estimated from their catches, were killing about 80,000 sharks a month. That's the scale of it. When you work out, that's just 15 boats. When people say 
a hundred million sharks die every year. I mean, that, that number is so low. It's ridiculous. When you think 15 boats were doing approximately a million a year, and that's 15 and China has what, four and a half thousand vessels. Korea has another 3,000, Japan has another 3,000, Taiwan has another like 4,000. When you add up all those boats that are all out there and they're all targeting, not necessarily targeting sharks, but catching sharks, yeah, we're probably looking 200, 300 million a year easily. That was nice to see the involvement of how things changed over just the 10 years I was there. We were doing the Whale Wars show on Animal Planet and it was all gung-ho and everything. But there's nothing more satisfying than boarding an illegal fishing boat with two guys with submachine guns saying you're under arrest. And that was as satisfying, if not more. The hard work is now paying off. Having the government to intervene really give you that extra support. I'm curious, when you guys were doing all those, how did you plan it? Because you would be on the high sea, you would be dealing with international law, and I'm sure you have got people, the nice lawyers, who would come and help you, provide you advice and guidance along the way. Big boys like BP, Shell, and everyone else whose economic interests may felt threatened, you would still be able to withstand any challenge from them. Yeah. And this is also where it evolved. In the old days, a lot of the actions were on the high seas. So like when we went to Antarctica, that's an in international waters. It's pretty much a lawless state when you're on the high seas. As we started working more so with these governments and things, another part of what evolved out of Sea Shepherd was Sea Shepherd Legal, which was founded by two really top lawyers who basically loved environmental law and wanted to work on our cases and not just to get us out of trouble, but so we could actually go on the offensive and start taking legal action out on these companies and on anybody we found doing any legal activities. So for example, like in Timor, when we set out to see, they were already working on what the legal ramifications were what we could do, what we couldn't do. And then as things unfolded, we ended up collecting evidence and the legal defense team actually in the government of Timor-Leste, we ended up providing them with a full sort of document of every single thing for their argument. So that's where it's all changed. The old days of just riding along in a speedboat and getting in front of boats and dropping ropes and things and trying to stop them. And in the old days, it was more about putting pressure onto governments to act highlighting the problem, especially like in Antarctica, it went on, nobody knew about it. So by going down there, and especially when we had Animal Planet with us, that put mm -hmm. the problem into everybody's living rooms. Everybody started talking about it. All the media started talking about it. And that was the modus operandi was to be able to put the governments into an embarrassing position where they had to act or be questioned by the population. Like in Australia, everybody loved the whales. The fact Japan was going down and killing whales that would swim along the coasts of Australia on the migration route and they do all the whale watching and they go down to Antarctica and the Japanese would then go and harpoon them all. That enraged the population of Australia. So we played a lot of legal games trying to bring them into the fold and put them into awkward positions where they had to act. That's where it's changed a bit. Now we put in legal takeout lawsuits against people and try to get them that way.
and normally with the backing of governments as well. So that's a really nice evolution. Obviously, you move on from sea shipper. It's not because you left on the back term, it's just that the wheel yeah, 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 changed. Yeah. Oh, very good term. And the basic fact was sea shipper grew so fast. And we needed funding wherever we could to run the ships or expensive things. We ended up closing down quite a few of the entities around the world. Basically, Sea Shepherd left Asia and I decided I was staying. So that's why I set up Oceans Asia. We basically do exactly the same thing as I used to do before, just under a different name. And still work quite closely, if I can, with Sea Shepherd. We share yeah. intelligence and data and things. Yeah. In Oceans Asia, you also got a project-headed, really cool name. Ocean CSI. So what does that do? When we set up Oceans Asia, I mean, a lot of these NGOs are run on empathy and don't kill the dolphins. They're really sweet and things like that. And when, that doesn't work. You need to go legal with it. You need to have scientific fact to back things up. So we operate what we call intelligence-based conservation. And like when it comes to the beaches and the marine debris, it's a huge problem. And as I said before, people are starting to get tired of beach cleanups because they're going and cleaning a beach. Now I fully support beach cleanups. I think they're a great thing. There's so many people doing them. So what I do more is we use our investigation skills on going to a beach. We'll take a section of it. We'll literally go through it, a fine tooth comb, look at the buildup, the constitution of the trash. What is it? Where would it likely have come from? I always like to say, if you went into a bathroom and the bath was overflowing, what do you do? Do you get a mop or do you turn the tap off? And a beach cleanup is getting the mop. You're going to be mopping yeah. forever until you turn that tap off. And the only way we can turn the tap off with marine debris is to find the source and shut it down. Find out where this is coming from, what it is, what sort of trash there is. That's what Ocean CSI is to educate. We do it a lot with kids. We take kids down the beach and say, yeah, this trash is not supposed to be here. We could just clean it up or we could actually look at it and see what it is and where are these bottles coming from for example we were out just recently on the soko islands there's an uninhabited group of islands where we do a lot of our research for plastic and so there was mcdonald's washing up and it's okay so i said to the kids how did that get here i don't know there's nobody living on the island there's no tourists really so it would have come in on the sea where's the nearest mcdonald's and they saw chung chow i said yep and which way are the currents coming oh from there so you can actually start to work out that came from Chung Chow Island, which is due east of the beach we were on. That's just a simple, a simple analogy, but it's actually looking into where the trash comes from. In 2016, we had a massive surge of debris coming up. And when we started looking at it, there was loads of these little flimsy clear plastic cups that you get on these water dispensers, which is cheap, low grade plastic, which doesn't really have any value. A lot of this waste does actually have value for recycle. This didn't. But the interesting thing that we found with those were they were already crushed and inside they had soil. It wasn't sand or mud, it was soil. But we were finding tens of thousands of them just covering all these beaches. And when we started looking into it, just up the Pearl River in China, they had these massive rains and that caused some of the biggest floods in 30 years. And we then worked with the government. We worked with this water modeling team and they have the current flows around the Pearl River and through Hong Kong. And we established that somewhere on the east bank of the Pearl River Delta was where we thought the source was. And we went to the government, we pitched them our idea. They then worked with the mainland government who then went and investigated and they found 
a recycle facility. The, the low-grade trash, they just literally put into a corner and covered with soil, and it had made like a, an embankment. And the rain had come and washed that away and washed all those into the sea. The mainland authorities then went and secured it, cleared it all up, and we never got any more of these cups. It was great. But that's just one example of turning off the source. For Ocean Asia, your mission statement says that you investigate and research wildlife crime and exposing and bringing to justice those who are destroying and polluting our ecosystems. Wildlife crime. It doesn't take half a brain cell to compile the list. It's actually a pretty long list. In Hong Kong, one of the very distinct thing is when you go to Shawan, when you go to any traditional Chinese medicine shop, you could easily find some weird and wildest exotic ingredients like sea horses, sea cucumber, and the gill of a yeah, manta gills and abalone. Over the years, I've been literally spending a lot of time in Shenguan walking around. And what we're looking for is shipments that are arriving. And then from that, we try to get data. So we'll try to get any identifying marks. So if it's coming in a container, get a photo of the container. With that container number, we can then go and search and find out where it came from, how much was it, how many tons who shipped it and everything else. And if there was endangered species in there, obviously the authorities can then look at that. We found two containers coming in on Merck, which is the world's biggest shipping company. And uh, they were the first ones to put an embargo on Sharkman. Yet there was two big containers here with Merck's written clearly down the side. And I documented those and I got the numbers and everything, but there's only so much searching we can do, but I contacted Merck's. And rather than go and plaster it all over the media and say, oh, look at Mertz, they're really bad, they're doing this. I went to Mertz and I said, listen, I think we've got a problem here. I know you've done the right thing to ban it. I actually had the first container and I showed them the photos. And Tim Smith, who was the head of Mertz in Hong Kong, met mm -hmm. with me for a coffee and we sat down and he said, I'm just furious that I've seen this. And I said, I bet you they didn't write shark fin on the shipment. They put something like dried seafood or marine product or something vague and uh, sure enough he came back to me and said yeah you're right dried seafood so we then worked with Mertz and we came up with loads of keywords that they could put in for their search so anybody then checking in a container to be shipped if it had dried seafood the person taking the booking with them have the power to go and say we need you to open it up want to see what's inside because that's the trouble a lot of this stuff is being shipped under sort of very vague headers and I've had shipments coming in or shipments going out even to the U.S. under potatoes, for example. I've had them going under party favors and tricks and whatever from Hong Kong to the U.S. or from Japan to the U.S. So we don't look at just Hong Kong, obviously. We are looking at the whole of Asia. So that's one of the things that we're doing with our investigations is we're actually looking at shipping routes and shipments that are going between here and Asia or from countries to Asia. And yeah, Mertz came on board. They were fantastic. And they called a meeting with the Hong Kong government, with the customs and excise and the AFCD and said, look, this is a problem. How do we deal with it? We are the shippers and we want to obviously stop and help reduce the amount of illegal wildlife coming through. But how can we do that when people are smuggling out under vague headers and they were very good then we had another one i found was out on msc which is the second biggest shipping line and their office was actually in singapore sadly their reaction was completely the opposite they said i think it's legal isn't it and i was like it's legal but on your website you say that you 
do not allow it. Oh, so then they changed their website. What? They said the shark fin and shark products. And when I was talking to them, then they went and said, oh, what about shark meat? Would you consider that a shark product? I said, but it's a product of a shark, surely. And they said, oh, we ship a lot of shark meat from Spain and Italy. So what they did was they actually amended their website. So they actually downgraded themselves, which was obviously not the result we were looking for. But what was embarrassing for them was they had actually signed on an international agreement called the Buckingham Palace Agreement with the Prince William. And that was a pledge that these companies had made. So of course, then we contacted them and Prince William's charity is the United for Wildlife. And they then got in touch with them on behalf of the prince and asked for an explanation. That's some of the things that we get up to when we talk about <laughs> investigating wildlife trade routes. That's actually really interesting I first got to learn more about shopping trade, the implication, the impact on the ecosystem pretty much around 10, 12 years ago. For me growing up, it was quite normal to have shopping to serve at a banquet and we just ate them without thinking twice about it. And having learned about it, obviously wished I had known much earlier. Five years on, although I think to a certain extent, the No Shopping Soup campaign around Asia has achieved some kind of awareness. So the consumption rate has reduced, but incredibly, the shopping trading still continue. You still find the illegal containers of shoppings, right? Yeah, it's still coming, but they just get cleverer as we start finding them. For example, I always used to find them all drying out on the street. I went there mm -hmm. with the cameras. We got it all over the news. It was all in the media. So they moved to the rooftops. Then I started finding them on the rooftops and documenting that. Now they move from the rooftops. They move to drying houses. We start finding the drying houses. So it's cat and mouse. And I would spend my free time off literally going into big industrial buildings, going up to the floor, up to the roof, checking the roof, and then walking down the fire exit, literally sniffing. Cause you could smell where the shark fin was because of the high sort of ammonia smell and mm -hmm. literally going like a sniffer dog down the fire escape. And it's a never ending game of cat and mouse with us and the shark fin traders. Yeah. So what makes for oceans Asia? Yeah. So we've been working on, as I said, we've been doing a lot with the shark fin industry, but whenever I go down to, or I take anybody down to Shenguan. And like you said, you walk around, there's all these other species. I always like to say it's the sixth mass extinction happening right in front of your base. And a lot of the species are very iconic sharks, for example, everybody goes down there, they see the shark fin. Nobody takes mm. notice of all the sea cucumber or the fish more that's coming in. I and mean, we're seeing tons and tons of sea cucumber. So we started about a year and a half ago to really focus on sea cucumbers and sea cucumber trade and sea cucumber crime. Nobody really likes to even photograph them or look at them. It's just a sausage lying on the seafloor and it's not exactly mm -hmm. photogenic, but they play such an important role in the ecosystem. So we started focusing on that. We've written several papers. My partner, Till, and the research team, they've been doing a lot of work on sea cucumber crime. We focused on India and Sri Lanka. For the first one and we've been working with the police in sri lanka and india posing as buyers and things and actually setting up sting operations in, in india for example sea cucumbers are completely protected you cannot fish them you cannot own them you cannot sell them 
And yet so many tons were being shipped out every day via Sri Lanka to Hong Kong. We were working with the police there to set up stings with fishermen who were actually putting it on sale on Facebook. They're not even trying to hide things. They're posting on Facebook, I have two tons or I can supply a ton a month looking for buyers. So we posed as buyers and set up a sting operation with them and the police took care of the rest of it and arrested them. So yeah, we're doing a lot with sea cucumber crime. Yeah. And sea cucumber, why are they so important for the ecosystems? They clean the ocean pretty much. They clean the seabed areas and eat the algae, everything else. If you don't have sea cucumbers in the area, everything else overgrows and basically smothers out things like coral. So sea cucumbers are very key and there's like a very fine balance. If you take too many of them out of one area, that area just dies. I think it's very important to bread sea cucumber being the janitor of the sea bed. It's basically it's cleaner. And then also Chinese to have them as a part of the banquet delicacy. And frankly speaking, you're eating junk. Yeah, we're trying to look at all four of what they call the four treasures of the sea which you have in all Chinese banquets, is shark fin, sea cucumber, fish maw, and abalone. So those four you have to have in a banquet. And three of the four, nobody really looks at, nobody really cares about. But they're all players in the delicate ecosystem. Now we're looking into the fish maw. Obviously, the most famous fish maw was the totoaba from Mexico, which is really highly prized. It's worth more per ounce than gold. And it's driving another species, the vaquita which is the world's mm -hmm. smallest marine mammal. So we got this tiny, small dolphin. We're down to about 10 left now in the wild. People were going out, the, it was like a gold rush in Mexico. Where people were literally going out, buying boats to go out and catch a totoaba because their swim bladders can go for ridiculous 20, 30,000 US dollars for a, a swim bladder. And they're shipped to China. Some people eat them. Some people keep them like fine arts and they mature in value over age as they age. That's just one of the four treasures. There was another fish called the Bahaba, which was the gold medallion fish. And that was found around the coast of China and Hong Kong. That is now extinct, scientifically extinct. You get one or two caught every now and again. So they went down to the next one, which was Totoaba. When that one goes, they'll move to the next one. So it's moving down the food chains. And there's a lot of swim bladders now coming from Africa. We're looking into all the shipment routes from Africa, bringing this in by the tons at a time. Oh my God, my heart hurts. <laughs> the white, yeah. It, it all sounds depressing, but there is a lot of good things going on. There's a lot of great projects. I was involved by a good friend of mine, Anwar, who does all the coral propagation. He was working with the Thai national parks. And he ended up closing Maya Bay, where they filmed the beach for three years <coughs> and was replanting corals there. And I went over and spent three nights on the actual island, sleeping with the rangers on the island and seeing life coming back to Maya Bay. For example, black tip sharks, we counted over a hundred black tip sharks that had moved into the bay and started using it as a nursery because there was no disturbance. There was no boats there. There was no fishing and seeing life blossoming and coming back in such a short time. The same like in Hong Kong, we banned trawling and within a couple of years, fish life is booming to the point where we've got illegal boats coming in, trying to steal the fish. Whereas before there was nothing. Fishermen were catching fish that were like a couple of inches long and drying them and grinding them up and sprinkling them on the noodles. Now you're getting fish that are like six, seven inches long and they can actually eat the fish. So there is a lot of positivity. There's a lot of good things that are happening. 
there's also a lot of bad and obviously we're not going to be out of a job for a while. We'd like to. Yeah, <laughs> we're just about to say, I bet this is a job that you look forward to the day where you're out of job because you've got nothing more for you to do. Yeah, we're in the business of putting ourselves out of business. That's the whole idea. Sadly, there are some NGOs out there that actually see it as a business opportunity and just use it for cleaning beaches and just making money off it and not actually wanting to solve the problem. So when we're looking at investigating, shutting off the tap, they're like, don't touch the tap. We're getting good money out of these beach cleanups. And that's the really sad thing that we see. We do come across that and it's just the reality. That's part of the greenwashing as we've been talking about the latest hot topic. Yeah, greenwashing and sustainable seafood, in my opinion. At the moment, there's no such thing as sustainable wild fish that have been caught. There's illegal fishing all over the world and all these fishing grounds. Even if we set the quotas and we follow the quotas and everything else, there's always illegal boats out there as well taking it. All this sustainable seafood buzz, it's all a bit of a myth, but you can watch Seaspiracy for that and you might recognize somebody in it. <laughs> okay, I want to ask you some questions. Then I'm going to ask my guests as well. Go ahead. First question in your drive bag, what are the top three items that you will always carry with you when you go on a, a diving trip? My bag is normally just full of electronical gadgets and gizmo, your laptops and your, all your power banks and chargers. It's normally just gadgets. It's all your storage devices and the hard drives and backups of this and that. Yeah. Only because when I go on a trip, I'm normally going for that sole mission to go and document something literally all the equipment takes up all my package allowance so your t-shirt just for the padding yeah pretty much yeah 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 thanks for that next question what are the three top tips that you would give on safe diving practice top tips plan dive the plan obviously <laughs> the first one it goes without saying and literally going with a respectable dive center there's a lot of cowboys out there don't go cheap because there's a lot of people offering cheap packages or cheap courses or rapid courses if somebody's doing a patio water in a day and a half you've got to question the how things like that i would say would be diving practices another one would be obviously buoyancy control and sticking to what your abilities are and don't overstretch know your limitations and don't push the boundaries you don't want to be an open water diver doing wreck penetration into an engine room of a ship with zero visibility because that won't end very well okay the next one what is your greatest fear my greatest fear actually is quite profound really my greatest fear is actually getting stuck in something underwater and it filling up that's always been my fear of how of dying. I don't think of any other way I would hate to go is actually being stuck in something as it fills up the water and not being able to get out, which is why cave diving terrifies me. That would be my biggest fear. Getting stuck in somewhere. When I watch these cave divers, I have utmost respect for them, but when they're literally going through a tiny little gap, they're squeezing their body through up a trench somewhere underground. And you think, what if you get up there and it's a dead end and you can't turn around and it, it terrifies me. Have you seen that documentary, The Rescue? Yes. What was your takeaway from it, given that you have this fear? I actually had the pleasure of meeting a lot of the guys and I've got a couple of them as friends on my Facebook. They came to ADEX in Singapore. These guys are at the cutting edge of just the superhuman. But yeah, watching that documentary, I just watched it literally about a week ago with my kids and it was amazing and the way they managed to actually get those kids out yeah hats off big kudos as you see in the documentary you had 
military divers, and I used to be in the Navy. Navy divers are some of the best in the world. But when it gets to something like that cave, even those Navy divers, even they're out of their limits. And these guys are superhuman as it is. But when you go and you have to formulate a team of the best of the best sort of thing, yeah, you can't really describe them as anything else but superhuman when it comes down to that. Their discipline and the fact that they just see it as a job and let's get on and do it. And yeah, utmost respect for that. It's very much like we said earlier, plan your dive and dive your plan. Yeah. They literally take that down to the T. Absolutely. I think it's a privilege to have watch what has happened. I recommend anybody who's not seen it, please go and watch it. The next question for you, what is your greatest extravagance? It's extravagant. I think underwater photography is an extravagance in itself. It's a rabbit hole that you open and go down and then you walk into a shop and you see something else and then you buy that as well. And then you buy things that you didn't need, but you look good. Or then you decide something else comes down. People like Canon are amazing and coming out with all these new toys. And then you've got to have them. And the amount of camera bodies I have, I was just moving house. So I got rid of a couple of camera bodies because I've just got so many because I kept buying the next ones the next one because it was bigger pixels and the next one because it was at faster speeds. And so I'd say extravagance definitely to, I, I, I don't buy so much on the dive gear side. It's more the photography side. Yeah. There's a lot of investment in there. Next question. What do you value most in your friends? Integrity and loyalty. I think in friends, people who will stick with you when the chips are down, There's people who will call you up even when things aren't going great. Yeah. I think that and honesty, definitely. Yeah. Somebody is true and honest, even if they messed up. I like that the first word that came out to you is integrity and it really reflects the line of work that you're doing in essence. Yeah. I think integrity is probably one of the most important things, especially for the NGO world, because what we do, we can't do with on thin air. We need donations. We need people's hard earned money to help us do what we need to do. Every dollar that comes in, I really feel guilty for, and I want to make sure that they get bang for their buck with it. And it goes to do exactly what it's supposed to do, because a lot of these bigger NGOs, a lot of that goes into administration and marketing and promotions and salaries. And that's what attracted me to Sea Shep. At the time, yeah, everybody was a volunteer. Then it was on the ships, the captains and the chief engineers, the ones who had to have the licenses. They were paid, but everybody else was volunteers. Whereas you go on Greenpeace and everybody was getting a salary. And it makes a big mm. difference when you ask somebody to do something, especially something dangerous. So in Antarctica, you get in a boat and go over there and harass and try to stop that harpoon ship. If you're on a paid salary, people say, I want more money for that. That's dangerous. Whereas if you're doing it out of your passion, you go out there and you just do what's got to be done. And that I think is a big difference. Thank you. One last question. So we swap seat and say you are the producer of this podcast and be interviewed. What question would you have for me to answer? All right. What are you going to do from tomorrow to make a difference? I think pretty much is what I'm doing now, producing the podcast. This is a passion project. So I, I would love to be able to continue regularly having this kind of conversations with different people from all sorts of different backgrounds. There's always something to share. So with you today is very much about conservation, the approach that you've taken, uh, and the impact that we made and changes that has taken place because of the actions that have been taken. I also look forward to the next person I speak to, who could be in a corporate space 
and then to see what diving has influenced them. What are the correlations? There's always some wisdoms and inspirations coming out of each episode. So I think from tomorrow, I will continue producing this podcast as much as I can. You have been listening to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Gary Stokes, who has given us some insight to how he and his team have been creating the impact, raising awareness, and seeing sustainable and constructive changes to our environment. It is, in a way, a thankless job, which mission can only be achieved by integrity and commitment to do good. Ironically, we do wish him all the best that he will be out of this job sooner rather than later. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechats.com. 